0: Previously on Flying the Line, a surge of skyjackings tears through the airline industry. Armed with experience, ALPA mobilizes to halt the advancing threat despite significant pushback. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 24, Skyjacking, Part Two. In 1969, the year before the tragic Eastern Airlines skyjacking, the FAA finally appointed a special task force to study electronic screening of passengers on the ground. But had it not been for 1st Officer Jim Hartley's death by gunshot on the flight deck, the report of this task force probably would have been buried like others before it. The group was called the Task Force on Deterrence to Air Piracy, and ultimately, they opted for the ALPA program of intensive ground screening, likely due to the unrelenting pressure by ALPA. After implementation of ALPA's program, the skyjacking problem started to abate, at least on U.S. domestic flights. Combining rigorous electronic screening with behavioral profiles of boarding passengers compiled by a team of psychologists, ground security officials began to make a real dent in the rate of skyjackings, but it took a massive effort. One that caught as many innocent pranksters as it did serious hijackers before the ground screening program would work. Movie star Marlon Brando, for example, wound up in trouble after joking to a cabin attendant about the arrival time in Havana. ALPA began to find wide public support for all its anti skyjacking ideas after the death of Jim Hartley. But amazingly, ATA and the government continued to insist, long after public opinion was clearly on the side of rigorous pre-boarding security, that such measures would cause a decline in passenger boardings. Perhaps the government and Air Transport Association were overly influenced by a few politicians who cited civil liberties violations as one possible aspect of pre-boarding screening. Senator Vance Hartke of Indiana, a powerful force in Congress during the 1960s, repeatedly attacked the pre-boarding screening process in a strange, idealistic crusade that once landed him in trouble for failing to open his briefcase for a ticket agent's inspection. It was a bizarre episode. Although a solution was at hand, to the domestic skyjacking problem after 1971, for U.S. pilots involved in international operations, it was another story. Many pilots were never aware of the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations, or IFALPA, until they began desperately to need its services in the fight against international terrorism. The events that finally gave IFALPA the leverage to act against skyjacking internationally, came as the result of trouble in the Middle East. The event that set this off took place in August 1968 with the skyjacking of an El Al flight to Algeria. Once on the ground, the skyjackers held the Israeli nationals and pilots hostage for the release of terrorists held in Israel there was an immediate outcry from the world's various airline pilots' organizations. At the suggestion of the French airline pilots, IFALPA sent a delegation to Algeria to negotiate the release of the hostages. Using the stick of an international boycott of all air traffic to Algeria, IFALPA got the hostages released. Since holding hostages had not worked, The terrorists tried direct violence next. In December 1968, two terrorists opened fire on a parked El Al plane in Athens, Greece. One passenger was killed and a flight attendant seriously wounded. Although they were tried, convicted, and sentenced to long prison terms, the two gunmen would soon be released. A long series of terrorist incidents directed at air commerce, followed. The fragile network of international aviation could do nothing to protect itself, since both management and various governments shrank from the kind of expensive ground security systems that were beginning to be installed in the United States. Except for the Israelis, whose El Al planes regularly flew with their own security, even in Europe, the airline target was still wide open to terrorism as late as 1972. At this point, the world's eyes began to turn to the United States. Only in America, and of course in the communist bloc countries, was there a solution to the skyjacking problem the world was finally ready to pay serious heed to the program ALPA had been advocating for in the United States for nearly a decade, ground prevention. But it would come too late, and the trigger would be something the Israelis did. Vulnerable, as the Israelis were to aerial blackmail, one would think they would avoid provocation. But Israel's hard-nosed security forces, finding out that two Algerian security officers were aboard a British airliner en route to Israel, insisted on taking them off the plane. Speculation was that the Israelis wanted to hold the two Algerians hostage for the release of their own operatives being held in Algerian jails, but no one knows for sure. In any case, the Israelis put themselves in the position of inviting retaliation, as Ifalpa pointed out in a telegram to the Israeli prime minister. The U.S. State Department agreed with Ifalpa, and ultimately, the Israelis would release the two Algerians, but not before Black September was born. The Israelis had foolishly grabbed the two Algerians in August 1970. On September 6, 1970, terrorists skyjacked four international flights simultaneously. Only one of the four flights was able to defend against the skyjackers when an onboard Israeli security agent got into a gunfight with the skyjackers, killing one and wounding another. That El Al flight survived only because the two grenades that were smuggled aboard had defective fuses. The other group of skyjackers flew a Pan Am Boeing 747 to Cairo, where they landed, evacuated all the passengers via emergency chutes, and then blew up the plane. The destruction was supposed to be a lesson to the Egyptians for their cooperative attitude towards a peace settlement with Israel. The other two aircraft were flown to an abandoned World War II airstrip in Jordan, where the occupants were held inside the airplanes without air conditioning or proper sanitation for nearly two weeks while the skyjackers tried to negotiate the release of Palestinians held in Israeli jails. When the British government refused to turn over the wounded skyjackers, another team seized a British airliner and added it to the collection of planes squatting in the desert. Meanwhile, the world waited tensely for the ordeal to end. Through massive diplomatic pressure, the Skyjackers were finally forced to release their captives. They then blew up all the aircraft as a parting gesture. Although the Skyjackers succeeded in blackmailing the British into releasing the wounded, they had worn out their welcome with Jordan's King Hussein. The Jordanian army subsequently crushed the extremist forces operating out of Jordan before Black September ended. The events leading up to Black September would ultimately convince the nations of the world that skyjacking could be eradicated only by the strongest and most concerted of international efforts. In a sense, ALPA and IF-ALPA had won their battle to force authorities at the highest levels to make the safety and security of commercial aviation a matter of international policy. In the United States, the fruits of ALPA's labor were most apparent in the Anti-Hijacking Act of 1974, one of the last pieces of legislation Richard Nixon signed before his resignation. The law was the result of a program of continuous pressure, ranging from the worldwide suspension of service in 1972, which saw many airline pilots throughout the world in symbolic and practical protest, refuse to fly. Internationally, IFALPA would press for ratification of the Tokyo and Montreal conventions against aerial piracy a principal provision of which was levying sanctions against any nation granting sanctuary to skyjackers. But the Anti-Hijacking Act of 1974, the first measure to curb aerial piracy that could be called bulletproof, was not born without a great deal of pain and effort. Despite the 160 skyjackings of U.S. airliners, from 1968 to 1972, which included the murder of one airline pilot and the wounding of eight others, many pilots were unwilling to give more than verbal support to the anti-skyjacking crusade. Some pilots supported airline management when it resisted anti-hijacking measures as too costly. For ALPA's Flight Security Committee, this lack of internal unity beyond mere lip service, was a major headache. By 1972, the Flight Security Committee had devised a training syllabus to teach pilots how to handle skyjackers, but the various airlines resisted implementing a standardized program. Clearly, one of J.J. O'Donnell's biggest challenges as ALPA president was to find out just how firmly— modern pilots would stand together in a true crisis. It all boiled down to the question of whether or not the blood of the pioneers who had formed ALPA still coursed through the veins of their modern successors. The vehicle to reveal the intestinal fortitude of modern pilots, or lack thereof, was the suspension of service crisis of 1972. The idea of a temporary nationwide work stoppage surfaced spontaneously at the local level at several airlines, particularly Eastern, after IFALPA's endorsement of the tactic in 1971. The SOS called for shutting down flights throughout the country for either 24 or 48 hours as a theoretical exercise in freedom of speech or expression. For J.J. O'Donnell, who was still feeling his way into the presidency, the S.O.S. would allow him to see if ALPA members would really stick together and follow the dictates of their board of directors. No airline would dare to fire pilots for a work stoppage in violation of a contract if everybody hung together. But if some airline pilots refused to honor the S.O.S., it would weaken the whole project drive a wedge between pilot groups, and suggest that modern pilots were incapable of unified action even in matters of life and death, theirs and those of the passengers whose lives had been entrusted to them. For this reason, J.J. O'Donnell and the Executive Board raised the SOS idea carefully, until finally a consensus emerged that such drastic action was necessary. O'Donnell himself had become convinced by early 1971 that an SOS was worth trying. Finally, in June 1972, after a great deal of effort by Captain O'Donnell, ALPA's executive board acted, authorizing participation in a 24-hour, worldwide SOS. O'Donnell was given the authority to determine how and when the stoppage would occur. ALPA SET THE SOS FOR JUNE 19, 1972. On the very day that rumors of a rebellion in the ranks began to circulate, J.J. O'Donnell was scheduled to appear on the morning television news show, Face the Nation. Confronted with hostile questions from the panelists, who cited comments of some other ALPA officials that they would not support the SOS, O'Donnell was in an uncomfortable position. He was also facing a court action that ATA had immediately filed to stop the SOS. O'Donnell put on a resolute performance, partly to intimidate his opponents, and partly to buck up his own wavering troops. When the crunch came, some airlines shut down, notably Eastern, Southern, and Northwest but others, like TWA and Delta, did not, although there were exceptions at every airline. At some airlines, the SOS broke down completely, thus threatening ALPA's internal unity. Eastern pilots were openly furious at Deltas, whom they accused of cowardice. Many Eastern pilots were heard to say openly that if Jim Hartley had been a Delta pilot, the attitude of Delta's pilots toward the SOS would have been different. Shortly after the SOS episode, a skyjacking occurred at Southern Airways that drove home just how vulnerable professional airline pilots were. Perhaps giving pause to those who refused to support the SOS and causing renewed concern about the bumbling machismo some ground security personnel had displayed in trying to halt skyjackings. Captain Billy Bob Haas and First Officer Harold Johnson had been skyjacked by three petty criminals with a grudge against the city of Detroit after taking off from Birmingham, Alabama in November 1972. The three skyjackers ordered Haas to fly northward to Detroit where they demanded $10 million from city officials. While they waited for somebody on the ground at Detroit to round up the money, the three skyjackers got extremely drunk, forced all the male passengers to disrobe, and generally terrorized everybody on board. After securing the money hastily rounded up by Southern's ground personnel in Detroit, the Skyjackers forced Haas to take off, thus commencing a wandering aerial odyssey that spanned the continent from Canada to Cuba. The Skyjackers threatened to crash the plane into the nuclear facility at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and at one point demanded to speak to the President of the United States. Landing in Cuba The skyjackers thought that the Cubans would welcome them as heroes with their suitcase of extorted money. But the tough-looking Cuban soldiers surrounding the airplane unnerved the skyjackers. And a Cuban spokesman was noncommittal about their future in the country. So they forced Haas to take off once more. By the time FBI agents decided to keep the Southern DC-9 on the ground in Orlando at all costs, by shooting out the tires, they were probably justified in doing so. Although, this action led the Skyjackers to shoot First Officer Johnson and force Haas to attempt a takeoff on flat tires. Somehow Haas managed, and the crippled DC-9, with smoke trailing from its burning landing gear, headed to Havana for the second time that day. Nearly every pilot who was skyjacked to Cuba came away feeling that the Cubans were going to be very hard on their unwelcomed guests. Captain Haas cooperated in the ALPA campaign to widely publicize the comments of Cuban officials indicating that the skyjackers had an unpleasant life awaiting them in Cuba. The object of this campaign was to dissuade potential skyjackers from trying it and perhaps it worked. Haas credits his survival and that of his crew and passengers to training he received in handling skyjackers psychologically. Alpa was responsible for the training programs. Among the first initiated by J.J. O'Donnell was one on hijacking management. In 1971, Alba's executive board authorized distributing educational material on deviant behavior and cooperated with the airlines and the FAA in a program for educating flight crews on handling such behavior. The FBI's intervention in the southern skyjacking posed a mortal danger to Haas and his crew. Despite an ALPA executive board resolution adopted in December 1971, requiring that the pilot-in-command of any aircraft whose safety is being threatened shall have complete and final authority on all questions relating to the handling of the hijacker's demands, whether the aircraft is at a ramp, taxiing, and or en route. This policy flowed directly from the FBI's earlier intervention during a skyjacking of a charter flight in Jacksonville, Florida, That resulted in the death of the pilot. By 1974, after ALPA's heavy advocacy had secured passage of the new anti hijacking law, ALPA President J.J. O'Donnell insisted that a provision of that law clearly stated that aviation authorities would have exclusive responsibility for the direction of any law enforcement activity affecting the safety of flight. In retrospect, Perhaps the most amazing thing about the passage of the 1974 anti-hijacking statute was that ALPA managed to secure it despite the obvious division within the ranks of professional airline pilots. Like an athlete who manages to win even on days when they are not performing at peak ability, ALPA somehow managed to accomplish its goals. Only in the area of automatic sanctions against nations harboring skyjackers did the 1974 law fall short of ALPA expectations. ALPA President O'Donnell stressed that the excellence of the 1974 law should not allow the air transportation industry to be lulled into a false sense of complacency. Since he had been fighting the skyjacking menace steadily for nearly four years and had endured many of the same frustrations as his predecessor, O'Donnell took understandable pride in the passage of the 1974 law. The response of professional airline pilots to the skyjacking menace was both heartening and disquieting. Many pilots displayed quiet courage In a willingness to stand tough in support of effective remedies backed by ALPA. But at the same time, many other pilots proved, by their tepid responses to the 1972 SOS, that the mere theoretical threat of disciplinary action by their airlines was sufficient to deter them from strong action, even in matters of life and death. For J.J. O'Donnell, the response of rank-and-file members to ALPA initiatives in the skyjacking crisis could not have been more encouraging. But if the SOS was not a success, it was at least a learning experience, one from which O'Donnell would have to profit if he were to remain in a viable position with regards to his membership. O'Donnell's strengths, it was widely agreed, were as a conciliator and negotiator. So he began patiently patching ALPA back together after the 1972 SOS episode, concentrating on a series of specific proposals to be included in what would ultimately be the anti-hijacking legislation passed by Congress in 1974. Nobody ever promised J.J. O'Donnell a rose garden as the president of ALPA. It was a good thing he knew it before accepting the office. Next time on Flying the Line, the ascent of J.J. O'Donnell to the ALPA presidency was an unlikely one, but also provided him the needed experience for the job when his time came. Thank you for listening. This has been Part 2 of Chapter 24 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA. 2021. All rights reserved.